Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. This week we're talking about the Archbishop of Canterbury's speech on Europe, which has provoked the wrath of Brexiteers. We'll be hearing from the Bishop of Derby about a new smartphone app for reporting signs of slavery. And we'll hear some of a fascinating conversation between the former President of South Africa, F.W. de Klerk, and Lord Finkelstein, which took place this week at the 75th anniversary dinner of the Council of Christians and Jews. If you don't subscribe to the Church Times, you can get 10 issues for £10. Do give us a rating on iTunes if you like the podcast. It helps people find us. First, the European Union has been the greatest dream realised for human beings since the fall of the Western Roman Empire. That's what Archbishop Justin Welby said in an address on Sunday to the General Assembly of the Conference of European Churches. Madeline, you got the scoop on this story. Can you tell us more about how you how you came across it and what the reaction has been? Yeah, so this is um, an assembly that happens every five years of the Conference of European Churches. Um, and it brings over 116 different churches from across Europe together um, in this big gathering. Um, it's something that we were aware was happening for a while. The moderate, moderator of the planning committee is um, part of the C of E who let us know. Um, and so I was going through the um, reports from the assembly and came across this address which Justin Welby had given on Sunday um, and was struck by um, his comments about the EU. Um, obviously the conference was meeting um, against a very different backdrop two five years ago when this referendum wasn't really sort of envisaged um, and many of the reports noted um, you know that this was one of a number of challenges facing Europe and was I guess to the foreminds of people meeting. So the speech, I mean, it's this very thoughtful speech. What are some of the, the key points? Um, it was really a talk about the, the risk of fear, and in particular, fear of the other. And the theme of the entire conference was about being witnesses. You should be my witness, exploring the Christian values of justice, witness and hospitality. And so much of the conference was dedicated to um, how can churches offer an alternative to the fear of the other, um, which is perceived as um, sort of percolating in Europe at the moment. And so his speech was really examples of the way in which Christianity and churches um, offer hospitality, offer neighbourliness, um, offer community. And within that speech, he praised the EU, as you've noted. Um, he described how it brought peace, prosperity, compassion for the poor and weak, purpose for the aspirational and hope for all of its people. Um, he did then go on to say that he didn't think that Brexit would bring about the downfall of Europe. Of Europe. Um, so Europe wasn't going to fall, he stressed. But he also was cautioning against complacency. And so he was saying the fact that Christianity survived in Europe does not indicate that it's indestructible, but that God protects the church that he created and loves. And he then went on to make this call um, to the church for the way in which it should act, um, the witness that it should be to Europe, um, including speaking truth to societies and acting in a way that was consistent with that truth. Um, so it was it was kind of a call of call to arms to the church, um, as the conference was in general, to um, be this place of hospitality and um, confidence, I guess, against a backdrop where the conversation was around um, some of the very real challenges facing the continent. He talks about populism, doesn't he? Putting up walls and barriers to smother dissent and disagreement. Yeah, and that was also noted by the president of the conference, um, also an Anglican, um, the Right Reverend Christopher Hill. He talked in his report about disenchantment with the idea of Europe. He talked about neo-nationalisms, populist politics, um, and the rise of Euroscepticism, um, scare stories about migration and refugees. So that was also noted by, by others, um, in addition to Justin Welby. And since your story went on our website on Tuesday morning... 
it was, it was picked up very widely by the national press. Um, it seems that some of the tabloids got onto some Brexiteer MPs for their reaction. Yeah, I mean, this isn't the first time that Justin Welby has talked about his views on EU and on the referendum. Um, he said publicly that he was going to be voting Remain, as many C of E bishops did. Mm. He's since made some more kind of nuanced comments about the EU. So on, on some occasions, he'll raise real concern about what might have been unleashed by the referendum, um, and in particular, xenophobia. He's also been willing to criticise the EU as it stands, and more recently, since this um, press coverage, he's talked about the urgent need for reform in Europe. He's expressed concern about the treatment of Greece, for example. He does qualify his support for the EU with a recognition that it, it does have problems. And he's criticised kind of both sides of the campaign. So he suggested that um, perhaps Remainers are, are paranoid and overly sceptical about what might be achieved in the wake of Brexit. But he's also criticised um, Brexiteers as well. So he, he does tend to try to be even-handed. And perhaps people who hadn't read the entirety of his address thought that um, you know it was a really unqualified support. It's also quite interesting to note that a lot of the criticism of this speech suggests that um, Justin Welby is sort of meddling in politics and that he's given up talking about God because of dwindling congregations and so he's sort of messing other people's business, which I think, you know, is a recurrent criticism, which is very unfair given that he spends the vast majority of time talking about God. Yeah. Speech he, talks about St Benedict. And yeah, I mean, he tends to get Jesus within sort of the first few sentences yes. of, of um, any sort of proclamation that he makes. So I think one issue is that basically political commentators only tune in to what Justin Welby says when he makes a sort of overtly political mm. comment. And, you know, the suggestion that he should refrain from commenting on politics is, you know, there's its own debate there. He's often welcomed for um, intervening in, in sort of other scenarios. So it was quite interesting to sort of gauge where the criticism was coming from and um, the nature of that criticism. Do you think to some extent politicians like his interventions when they agree with them and they don't like them so much when they don't agree with them? Yes, and I think there's also sometimes a suggestion that, you know, Theresa May is going to be incredibly wounded by his comments, which I'm not sure is substantiated. She said in the past, you know, sometimes the church will disagree with us, sometimes it will agree. And there is generally an attempt by... I think the CV's public um, affairs wing to try and be balanced. We've seen some of the statements before general elections which do attempt to refrain from in endorsing a political party and um, generally sort of make calls for the common good. And if people do want to read the entire address, it's on the Conference of European Churches website. Yeah, and we've linked to it from our story. Next, the Church of England's Clearer Initiative has commissioned a new smartphone app that allows users to report on signs of slavery at car washes. Hattie Williams has been talking to the Bishop of Derby, Alistair Redfern, who chairs the Independent Anti-Slavery Commissioner's Advisory Panel, to find out more. You talk often um, about the importance of the Church of England parishes and the extent of that network. How important are those parishes in identifying and, and combating modern slavery? Well, I think we have a crucial role because obviously there are issues like having the right law in place, helping law enforcement develop techniques to fight the crime. But the crime largely works because it's hidden from us. And the Clure Initiative, which we set up the Church of England and in, and in partnership with the Catholic Church and others, we have a strap line, we see you, because folks are trapped in slavery because we don't notice. The Pope has this phrase, the globalisation of indifference. We're all so busy 
looking at our small screen, running our life to suit ourselves, deleting what we don't like, all that kind of thing. But we've become very insensitive to what's going on around us as long as we get a good deal. Jesus begins his ministry with a sermon at Nazareth. We're going to notice the poor and needy. That's where the gospel makes a difference, bringing God's children who've been excluded and hidden. He ends his ministry with a summary, Matthew 25. Well, if you're on board for this gospel, it's because you've seen me in the hungry, the poor, the prisoner. So I think it's a litmus test of the gospel for me. If it means anything in our modern world, it means noticing those who've been not noticed, particularly those who are being abused, oppressed, and enslaved. That mandate challenges Christians to step up. The police need more and more eyes and intelligence. So one of the things we're launching is this app for car washes, for instance. We need to help consumers learn we have a role to look at products and practices and services, not make judgments, but ask critical questions, which others can then follow up and make judgments about. And also, because the statutory agencies, like local authorities, like the police, are very pressed in terms of resources, Christians and people of faith can add extra energy to try and have time to spend with people who are going through systems to discern if they've been trafficked and how they can be supported. We can go the extra mile to find accommodation sometimes, pastoral care. And of course, the big systems only give people a short time where they're cared for. Christians are getting organized in different areas to offer a longer time of accompaniment trying to find people work. Uh, When people have the humanity smashed out of them, they need loving, really. You know, systems find it difficult to love. Christians can bring that love into systems, bring it into partnerships with the systems. And I think our parishes are an amazing network of all kinds of people with whom we can do awareness raising, they become part of the intelligence system, but they can step into this area, reaching out towards victims and trying to help and care for people. I understand that some sort of 45 million people are affected by modern slavery and some sort of 11,000 or so in the UK. Um, But I understand those figures may be much higher. Um, What's your understanding of of how much we know about modern slavery and the extent of it, not just in this country, but also abroad as well? Well, I mean, the figures you quote are a good example of how we, with our ability to look at information and process data, Mm. we can put figures on it. But of course... They're just the people who've been noticed or the systems that seem to be creating slavery. Uh, People in this country would say the figure's vastly greater than the 11 or 13,000 that people sometimes quote. Even in a place like Derbyshire, we discover instances of slavery in villages in the Peak District, in small areas where uh, little businesses are operating. So I think it's very rampant. And of course, one of the complexities is it merges into what you might call poor employment practices. You know, a lot of people have zero-hours contracts. The relationship between employer and employee has dissolved because everybody wants flexible working. Mm. And so there's plenty of grey areas where it's difficult to know whether people are being just taken advantage of, uh, they're desperate for work, or they're being enslaved. Mm. So I suspect in all that sort of greyness, the figures are much greater. And they certainly are worldwide. You know, I'm just beginning to work with some colleagues internationally on a project about the textile industry in Southeast Asia and things. Um, There are vast numbers of people employed in the industry that we need to help look at itself and how it operates. Much of it good, 
but some of it a kind of front for this kind of abuse. And you mentioned earlier the car wash app, obviously we've written about in our paper. Tell me a bit more about that and why particularly focusing on car washes especially? They're a very obvious feature of modern society. People like you and I have seen the closure of these machines that used to wash cars at garages. And more and more, you can go to supermarket car parks or wherever, and people are washing cars for ridiculously cheap prices. So it's become part of our culture. We have to say there's a lot of people running car washes who are perfectly good businesses, and we're in touch with you know that kind of sector. But because it's not easily regulated, uh, it's a lot of casual labour. It's a classic place where you can bring people in, particularly from abroad, often illegally, so they're frightened to protest. You can offer appalling living conditions, appalling remuneration, and make them wash cars all day. And of course, people like us, as I say, we rush in as long as it's cheap, we take the service and we rush off, we don't notice. The app is a model, really, of what we need to do. While you're sat in your car, you know, waiting for it to be washed, you can answer a few questions which help you just make some very simple preliminary assessment of what it looks like, what what seems to be happening. You're not asked to make a judgment. Your reflections are fed into a system where a proper judgment can be made, and if the signs seem to be significantly worrying, then people in authority will check them out. But, you see, we can only get over the starting line of noticing and say, we see you, if we as consumers take the time and trouble to begin to ask simple questions about deals that seem to be too good to be true, about the poor conditions or the way people are treated. And I think if Christianity, if the gospel is about noticing what needs to be noticed in God's economy but is being neglected, then this is just a simple sign of one of the major developments which has produced a frame in which slavery can flourish. Of course, as we speak, the people who run these things are very smart business operations. They will be moving into other sectors because they thrive by keeping ahead of the game, really. Mm. But nonetheless, there's enough evidence, I think, that we've got to do something. And um, it could be a tool for other kinds of awareness raising. Sure. And, and this app, it's connected to the Modern Slavery Helpline, is that right? Yes, so that people can um, feed the information in and assessments can be made and checks done by those who know more about it. And all anonymous, of course, as well. Yes. And I must just ask you as well, you quite recently wrote a letter to the Times specifically about identifying and reporting slavery in the UK. Why did you send that letter and, and why then particularly? It was for the Easter weekend. And I think that's a time when part of the Christian witness is to invite people to reflect on what does new life look like and what does the richer eternal life that we begin to taste through the gospel, how is it going to be manifest? And this, as I've said, is a, a pretty test case, I think, for the gospel. So I, with colleagues, just wanted to raise that thought for people, and so we launched it there. On Monday, the Council of Christians and Jews celebrated its 75th anniversary at a dinner at Lambeth Palace. The keynote speaker was F.W. de Klerk, the former president of South Africa and Nobel laureate. He was in conversation with Lord Finkelstein of The Times and a Conservative peer. Here's an extract of their conversation. Tell us about your relationship with uh, Nelson Mandela. It was at times a stormy relationship. It was at times a very good relationship. It ended in a good friendship. My first meeting with him was while he was still in prison. He was no longer in a cell, he was in a 
Walden's house and he had his personal cook and he had TV and everything, but he was still a prisoner. And in December 89, he was brought under cover of darkness to my office in Cape Town, which later became his office. And at that first meeting, we didn't discuss any of the real issues which we would discuss later. We were just sizing each other up. We were making small talk. Small talk about big things. He was a great admirer of the Boer generals, which took on the British in the Anglo-Boer War. And he went and told me about how he admired Christian de Wet, General de Wet and General de Marais and so on. But we were sizing each other up. And in the end, and we both wrote it in our respective autobiographies, we could say in those books, after that first meeting, I got a feeling I can, I can work with this man. I can negotiate with this man. There's, there's a credit worthiness which I appreciate in that man. He said it of me and I said it of him. And that laid a foundation for what later happened. Even at times when we were at our, in, in positions of strong opposition to each other, him berating me in public and things like that, great tensions between us. When our main negotiators came to us and said, now we've reached the deadline and the two of you need to help now. We could rise above those tensions at that time. And we could sort of say, okay, let's find a solution and found solutions. The second time I saw him was two days before he was released on the 11th of February 1990. He, again, he was brought under cover of darkness, again in my office, and I said to him, Mr. Mandela, I want to tell you, uh, tomorrow I will hold a press conference and announce your release on the 11th of February. And he said, no, Mr. President, I don't want to be released on the 11th of February. I said, why not? He said, it's too soon. We need more time to prepare. And I remember telling him, Mr. Mandela, you and I will negotiate about many things after your release. But this is not negotiable. You've been in jail long enough. Let's negotiate what time of the day and where will you be released. And he gave a rueful smile and said, okay. Then, during the election time and the negotiations, there were many tensions. Then we reached agreement in December 93 and finalized it in March 94, passed the new transitional constitution, had the elections, a government of national unity in terms of the transitional constitution, with me, one of these two deputy presidents. And for the first two years, it worked out fine. Between me and him, actually, all the time it worked out fine. But after two years, they felt they've learned enough. And they tried to silence me as the, also the leader of the main opposition party. And said, you have your chance in cabinet to differ from us. You can't differ in public from us. Even though you didn't get what you want, wanted in cabinet. So then was again a time of big tension. But after our joint retirements, we really became good friends. Elita, my wife and I, had him as a guest in our home. Uh, we were guests in his home, met with him and, and his then wife, uh, the widow of Samora Michelle, phoned each other on birthdays. So, 
And obviously one of the issues that must have been tense is uh, the process of reconciliation um, that must that follows uh, followed the changes and the change of regime. Um, and obviously you would have also had problems with your base in terms of uh, reconciling them to the fact that uh, this process would go on. So how did you deal with that issue, the issue of peace and, and reconciliation? Well, let me say the greatest legacy of Nelson Mandela was his remarkable lack of bitterness after 27 years in jail. He was not totally not bitter. He was a bit bitter about certain things. But remarkably, a lack of bitterness. And his total commitment to reconciliation. In the Freedom Charter of the ANC, there's a sentence which said South Africa is for all its people, black and white. He lifted that out as his mantra. And what he did for reconciliation and his absolute conscientious commitment to reconciliation was very special. It's his greatest legacy and I greatly admire him for it. From my side and from his side, we always had the problem of wings in our party, wings in our broader support base, which felt both of us have gone too far and made too many concessions to each other. Today, in the present political debate in South Africa, I still think that one third of the whites say I've sold out the country. And there's a significant percentage of blacks who say Mandela made too many concessions. They argue, yes, constitutionally, he didn't make such a bad deal, but he failed to negotiate the total removal of what they call white privilege. And therefore they stand and they propagate now a radical economic transformation. Expropriation without compensation. Radical things like that. Because they reject Mandela's commitment to real reconciliation and real inclusivity. But between us it was never a problem. That was the bond which tied us together. Our mutual belief in the need for reconciliation, moving on into the future and, and not being caught up in recriminations about the past. Do, do you worry about what a lot of people think is a resurgence of populist nationalism all over the world, maybe as a uh, revolt against the kind of uh, recognition of common humanity which you stand for? Yes, I worry about it. But I think also some people need to take responsibility for it. If I look at the European Union, for instance, I think the Federalists went too far with federalization of Europe. And that has and is upsetting the nation states forming part of the European Union because they feel that their heritage, their, their identity is being threatened that there is too much control from Brussels by, by bureaucrats, by bureaucrats instead of, of their, their sovereignty being sufficiently recognized. So I think what we're experiencing to a certain extent is a backlash against mishandling or mismanagement of diversity. I also think some of the other populist movements are born and arise from the big gap between the one poor, undernourished, 
percentage, one third percentage of the world population and the two thirds who have a relatively good life. The failure to manage poverty. And I think these two challenges, how to manage diversity, because if you analyze now all conflicts in the world, it's not wars between countries, it's wars between people living in the same country. It's the failure to manage religious diversity or ethnic diversity or cultural diversity or linguistic diversity. So that's one of the challenges of the century. The second one is the war against poverty. How to improve the quality of life of that two billion, two and a half billion people who don't know what they're going to eat tonight, who don't have a proper roof over their head, who don't have no hope in their heart for their children. And the third big challenge of our century, I think, is climate change and how to manage that. Well, will you share with us what your reaction was when you first discovered Donald Trump had been elected President of the United States? <laughs> I immediately said I think he's a, he's a loose gun and we're going to see a lot of fireworks. <laughs> Maybe finally I could ask you this. If you were uh, called into council, and possibly you have been, uh, by Benjamin Netanyahu and asked for his, and he asked you for your advice, as a global leader and with the experience you've had about how to create a climate for peace and change in the Middle East and in Israel, what advice would you give him? Let me start with what kick-started really the process in South Africa. Two initiatives. The first initiative was my speech of the 2nd of February 1990 announcing that package and laying the foundation and setting the platform for meaningful negotiations. The second initiative was Mandela's initiative, suspending his armed struggle and saying, yes, we will negotiate. As an outsider, I know it's an oversimplification. I see two major initiatives which are required in Israel and Palestine. The one is the right of the State of Israel to exist as a state needs to be acknowledged unconditionally. The other is the borders of a Palestinian state, I'm a believer in the two-state solution, should be defined in a way which is fair and equitable. Now, which one of these two initiatives? Israel needs to do something about the borders. The Palestinians need to do something about the right of Israel to exist. Now which one must come first? It's not for me to say, but in our case, I had to go first. Because I held the reins of power. I had the biggest army in sub-Saharan Africa. The strongest army. I was in power. And therefore, I believe I had to take the first major big step. To make it possible for Mandela to fall. But these two initiatives, I think, if taken in a proper way, in whatever order, in Israel and Palestine, will remove some of the major prohibitions against meaningful negotiation which exist with the world. Let's just finish with one thing, which is um, there is always a lot of things that you can uh, be uh, worried about in the world. But would you, would you characterize yourself still as an optimist? Definitely. I believe problems are there to be solved.
I believe when you face a problem, you shouldn't go and sit in the corner and put your head in your hands and cry. If it appears to be irresolvable on the face of it, you must call in the best people you can to assist you in thinking it through and say, if I can't get through the problem, how can I get around the problem? Problems are there to be solved. They are challenges and not walls. And if you see a wall, knock a door into that wall. So I'm an optimist, I believe, with a good leadership, with strong leadership, with compassionate leadership, the problems that the world faces today can be tackled effectively and successfully. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.